Welcome, everybody, to the 2022 Crime Time Best of the Year debate. I'm Barry Forshaw. I'm the author of Crime Fiction, The Reader's Guide, Simonon, and I'm the FT's crime critic. And I'm now going to introduce the panelists in no particular order. The man who's doing a lot of the tech work tonight, and if anything goes wrong, it's kind of his fault, <laughs> is Paul Burke. Now, Paul writes reviews, interviews, writes articles and features for Crime Time, Crime Fiction Lover, and the European Literature Network. He's the editor and presenter of Crime Time FM podcast, and he is a judge for the CWA Historical Dagger, and he lives in Wales. So don't you feel, Paul, living in Wales, that you're slightly out of the swim of things? Well, it's a solution to that. I can always come and stay in your spare room when there's events on. <laughs> Anytime. Anytime. <laughs> As we have them once a week, you, you could get, quite get used to me. But, but Wales now has Crime Cymru, doesn't it? If that was the correct yes. pronunciation. Yeah. So Wales is coming on as a crime locale. We will be having an Aberystwyth Festival. I think it's May, isn't it? End of April, early Ooh. May. Yes. Excellent. Yes, hopefully all the panellists will join us in Aberystwyth. Like Jake Kerridge will be in Aberystwyth for the first time yes. in his life. No, I've been to Aberystwyth before. Oh, well, there we are. <laughs> so Victoria Selman is the Sunday Times best-selling author of Truly, Darkly, Deeply and the critically acclaimed Zeba McKenzie series. She's been shortlisted for the CWA debut and short story Daggers. She's written for The Independent and hosts On the Sofa with Victoria, which is a panel-based podcast on Crimetime FM. Now, I think I've interviewed everyone from Highsmith onwards. You're doing it in a very short time, Victoria. You've got an amazing tally of interviews. How are you doing it? Well, I put a lot of people on the sofa in one go, Barry, so that, that helps me get through the names quite quickly. <laughs> <laughs> and do they tend to say yes now? Is your name just an entree and people saying yes when you say? Well, you... I think, Barry, the name is yours. So it's Crime Time FM with Barry Forshaw and, <laughs> and Paul and I at your coattails. So you're bringing them on the sofa, I think. <laughs> now, we have one participant coattails. tonight who may um, be grimacing at some point. If somebody here who has actually cracked their rib, it's Maxim Jakubowski. Now, as well as being a highly distinctive writer of fiction and chair of the Crime Writers Association, Maxim Jakubowski is one of the most respected editors in the crime genre. He's brought back into print many neglected crime novelists, such as Cornel Woolrich, for instance. He was proprietor of the much-missed London mecca of crime enthusiasts, Murder One, in Charing Cross Road, and he's very peripatetic. But it was being peripatetic that got you broken ribs last week, was it not, Maxim? Yes, I blame New York. <laughs> so tell us in briefly what exactly happened. I just slipped on a metal grate in the in heavy rain. I'd managed to avoid falling over in Reykjavik the week before, so it had to happen in New York. <laughs> well, we'll we'll forgive you if you grimace at any point. Iona Tade, oh, my on. secret my secret weapon. Iona Tade writes on all things crime fiction related, including research. She helped me on my Crime Fiction Reader's Guide and several of my books. She's also the chair of the Historical Writers' Debut Crown Judging Panel. It's a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? She blogs at Shots Mag, Confidential, and is an advisory board member for Capital Crime, amongst many other crime fiction-related activities. She juggles all of this whilst looking after some Supreme Court judges. If you, if you all remember the spider brooch that Baroness Hale wore, when she took down Boris Johnson, she'd swapped it with Io and Atari. So, Io, how the hell do you manage all these different strands of your life? I don't watch that much television. 
it don't you find so it all? Don't you find it a bit overwhelming at times? Yes, and I learn to switch off when well, I'm starting to learn to switch off a, a lot more. But yes. uh, as I said, it's more the fact that I'd rather read a book than watch television. I've covered Laura Wilson's psychological crime novels, Stratton's War, which won the CWA Ellis Peters Award for the historical crime fiction, and both The Lover, <laughs> which won the Prix de Paula European, uh, and A Thousand Lies were shortlisted for the CWA Gold uh, Dagger. She has taught on the crime thriller MA course at City University, London, co-programmed the Killer Women Festival. Now, her first novel for young adults, Monochrome, was published using the pseudonym Jamie Costello. She is also, of course, as everyone knows, The Guardian's crime and thriller reviewer. So, uh, Laura, Sigurdardottir said to me that when she'd been writing children's books, she enjoyed poisoning young minds. Is that what you're doing now? Not at all. I entertaining and informing them. And I'm I am here tonight as, as Laura Wilson. Jamie Costello, a YA author, is a much nicer person than I am. I might <laughs> just might gonna be my usual grumpy chop self, I'm afraid. <laughs> and then we have the man with whom I'm often confused, Jake Kerridge. <laughs> it happens all the time. I, I don't know why it really is. We're often confused, Barry, yes. <laughs> So Jake, despite his extreme youth and his dark beard, is an eminence grise in the crime fiction world. He is, of course, the Telegraph's reviewer. He is an ace interviewer, and he's actually better interviewing authors than me. He should be doing the hosting for this because he listens to them more, don't you, Jake? <laughs> I talk less. <laughs> that could well be it. Couldn't it? Is that what you mean? <laughs> so, Jake, you and I spend a lot of time going to meals with authors. Is it a hard life, what we have to do? Well, not not so much these days. They 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 haven't really come back after COVID. So um, yes, it, it's normally a, a tin of beans in my garret these days. All right. <laughs> However, I imagine several of you will be meeting, as will I, Harlan Coburn tomorrow. Correct? Yes. We are. You yes. see the heads being nodded there. <laughs> I had to say no, living in Wales. <laughs> <laughs> so the the format tonight, as with previous times when we've done this debate, is it is a debate, but we're starting with people's top fives. Normally, extracting the top five crime novels of the year from the group you see in front of you is like blood from a stone. But this year, they were all very forthcoming. And I've got everybody's list in front of me. Uh, and um, they were an impressive group of novels. Some of them you will know. Some of them you won't know. And in between talking about our selections briefly, we will have certain topics that we're going to talk about where there may be blood on, on the floor. So I'll start with... Um, my first choice, which is Ian Rankin's Heart Full of Headstones. And I wrote about that. It's an encomium for a new Ian Rankin novel is redundant. He is the lodestone of the crime genre for his diamond hard novels featuring battle-weary detective inspector John Rebus, now retired. Here in the crossheads of attacks on the controversial police culture that he has until recently been a reluctant part of. Well, did anybody else pick that book? Nobody. I, I, I picked it in my Telegraph books of the year i think right. it's one of the best ones he's done for a while yes indeed yeah it's got a brilliantly shocking but absolutely inevitable ending to it so Maybe. let's let's now move on to um the first choice of io uh what was your first choice io um i think it was city on fire by don winslow yes that's yeah. a strange book isn't it because we all got copies of it very early yes uh, long before it was published in the uk i'm not quite sure what happened with that book well, 
I don't know either. But for me, I've always been a big Don Winslow fan. And this, of course, is the start of a new trilogy. And once he's finished writing the trilogy, he's not writing anymore, I understand. But I found it quite gritty and moody and very immersive and um, just a really good story. And I'm slightly, I was slightly worried because I really don't really like mobster books. Mm. But for some reason, I love this one. It's based on Homo. It's, it's a yes. of, uh, the idiot, isn't it? It is, isn't yeah. it? With a, a beautiful young woman causing a war. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. It's yeah. interesting that you mention, Aya, that he is um, he's stopping writing after this trilogy. Yeah. There is a very good crime writer currently at work who's told me privately that he will not be publishing any more crime fiction. But I can't tell you who it is. <laughs> Sorry about that. Didn't take well, you shouldn't tease us things, then, should you? Exactly. I, shall, I, shall, I shall twist your arm tomorrow yeah. when I see you, yeah. Barry. Don't worry. Like, I've always liked to tease. So, Jake, your first choice was A Season in Exile by Oliver Harris. Yes. Which I haven't read. Uh, it's really good. Uh, I was just say, uh, going to say Lee Child has said he, he'll retire as well. Or he's ah, yes, retired. he has. In yes. fact, has they're he dropping, not now actually retired? Yeah, they're dropping like flies. Yes. Uh, yeah, Oliver Harris, who I think is quite young by yeah. crime fiction standards, um, has created this wonderful cop. Uh, I, I wrote somewhere he, he makes, he's such a maverick, he makes Rebus look like a job's worth. Um, he's called Nick Belsey, and this is... Uh, I can't remember, third or fourth Nick Belsey book, and he ends up in Mexico in this one, and he's just a, a very bad cop. Um, right. Very charming with it, and you fall in love with him, and he creates all sorts of mayhem. I must admit that I read every single one of you. I read and watch your blogs. I read your reviews. I clip Laura Wilson's reviews. I clip Jake's reviews. I've not seen any of you, apart from Jake, talk about Oliver Harris. Anybody else spotted this book? I've reviewed him in the past, and he's uh, very good. Yeah. And, in fact, I saved this one to read in my not-very-copious free time, but I will get to it because I really like his stuff. That could almost be our first debate topic, Laura. How the hell do we find more time to read all the books which are demanding attention? I, I don't know. I've got towering piles of them and I I think a lot of people have this problem actually and I don't think you ever can I think you have to accept that you're basically running after a train that you'll never catch mm. so Jay, uh, it think, was it Jake who said um talking about the the new Robert Galbraith book um about the sheer daunting length of crime fiction what did you say Jake that crime fiction should only be I don't know how many words you said <laughs> yes, what, what's the, you the 50,000 words? Well, no, I, like, I, like I actually sustained an injury from that book. First time <laughs> this ever happened to me in my life. Um, I fell asleep while reading it. Uh, and <laughs> That's a good <laughs> Actually, it actually cut here. Yes. It, the scar's gone now, um, but it was there. And um, I, I was quite worried in case I had a black eye the following morning because it, well, it fell with great force it can happen and, and fact, I've, got, I've got a book on italian filmmakers which is literally that thick if i read it in bed i'm left with an indentation on my chest here mm. books should not be dangerous should they well certainly not books you read in bed i mean i i weighed this book and it crashed the kitchen scales um <laughs> at 1.3 kilos and that's too much i mean Terrific book, but actually there was a slimmer book in there trying to get out. I Yes, yes. So, Victoria, your first choice was the book I liked by the excellent Ruth Ware, The IT Girl. Yes. 
Why did you yes, pick that? Yes, it's great. It's it's really great. It's um, I've actually got a few uh, stories about toxic friendship on my list, and this is a really good example of one done very well. It's set in uh, in Oxford University, but in an imagined college, and it's it's true Ruth Ware. I mean, it's twisty, it's mysterious, it keeps you turning the pages, and it has an ending you won't see coming. And you just know when you pick up a book by Ruth Ware that you're just going to enjoy it, and you can lose yourself in it. And and it's not it's not too thick. It's certainly not. <laughs> it must be less than 500 grams, Laura. So you might enjoy it too. Did you pick the Cambridge one, the reunion for balance, Victoria? <laughs> you know what? I actually said to Barry, it would be very interesting to have a discussion on this because there are so many toxic friendship books set in Oxford and mm. Cambridge. Mm. And that's quite interesting, isn't it? What yeah. is it about the dreaming well, spy? I think it's, it's, it's because you get that thing of person from a not Oxbridge background goes to posh university. Yeah. It's kind of a trope. It wouldn't yeah. work so well if it was, say, Sheffield or somewhere. That's that's my theory anyway. Yeah, there's a romance, I think, and people have a view yeah. of it. Dreaming spires, bloody darling. Yes, yeah. I think so. And the idea of closed doors as well, mm. what's really behind there. I think yeah. is something that people like to explore, but it's is interesting actually. There are a number of books that have come out this year, all yeah. set in in those colleges. Yeah. Uh, I'm so looking obviously some... the first one set in Slough Polytechnic. <laughs> <laughs> she likes to channel other authors who she's just been reading. So she's had Daphne du Maurier, obviously Christie. I didn't feel she did that with the the IT girl, did she? No, she, was, she I... wasn't channeling another author. I I don't I haven't noticed that so much about her I have to say but I just I just thought it was a really good read it was a sort of it was fun it wasn't taking itself too seriously it was it had its mystery at its heart it had great characterization I I really enjoyed it the the next author which is which is Paul's first choice last time I met him in London I was talking to him and I noticed that my arm was beginning to swell like this it's because I had a blood test thing on my arm which which would swell at intervals and I wondered if Robert Crace would notice this. He did. <laughs> so, Paul, you picked Racing the Light by Robert Crace. Yeah, I, I think I must have been in a sunny mood for this one because this is a, a lighter book than perhaps I'd normally choose. Yeah. It's the 19th Elvis Cole and Joe Pike thriller. Yeah. And it's definitely amongst the best in the series. Mm. It's got all the elements of the classic LAPI novel, good dose of hard-boiled and galashings of humour. Um, Elvis is a great character. Joe is a great sidekick. And it's quite a complex story, but it's so easy to read because it's just consummate writing. Um, wacky characters that you don't particularly like at the start. But yeah. this is, as I said, such good writing that it makes you you start liking these characters and feeling for them. So it's fresh and it hit the spot, entertaining and fun. He's been he's been very consistent over the yeah. years in terms of um, such good writing, Robert yeah. Crace, isn't he? To totally reliable. Somebody said to me this year, it might have been Laura Wilson, I can't remember who it was you, Laura, that there is this tendency for us all to respect and tip the hat to heavyweight male American crime writers of a certain generation. Do you think they Yeah, I do. I think I think there's sort of the idea of the big book, you know, and we forget that actually importance in inverted commas isn't important. Good writing is. Yes. Yeah. I, I think one of the things I like about Robert Cray is the fact that, which is in some ways is also rather sad, is that I think he's rather underrated here in the UK. Mm, yeah. Definitely. He doesn't get the same level of attention as, say, Michael Connolly. It's, it's, exactly. It's, and he's very, very good. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. 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 The maximum you though, as well. I'm going to go to, to Maxim's choice. Maxim, you picked Nita Prose, which I do like that name. Is it really her name or is it just a good pun? Nita Prose is The Maid. Indeed. Uh, it's a book I 
came to not expecting to like at all. I looked at the blurb, I looked mm. at the story, and I thought, this is not for me, but I always give uh, first novels a chance. And uh, after a couple, of, a couple of chapters, I loved it. It's old-fashioned, it's entertaining, it's a story of a very simple-minded young lady in... Uh, who works as a maid. She's also an orphan. She works as a maid in a plush hotel and basically uh, has to uh, solve a murder which takes place in the hotel for which, obviously, she has been framed. And it's utterly delightful. Mm -hmm. It has a voice. Uh, it is her real name. She is actually the editorial director of uh, uh, Penguin uh, Random House Canada. Uh -huh. and I actually okay. met her two weeks ago in Iceland. She's very, very nice. Right. And um, it's taken everybody by storm. I mean, I loved it. I don't know how it's done in the UK. In America, it got into the top five. And they start filming in a few weeks. It was bought by the, uh, the English actress Florence Pugh. Right. Uh, oh. an, actor, an actress okay. who can do no wrong yeah. at the moment, can't she? Yeah. Indeed. Uh, I thought, I mean, I loved it, not only because it's a good book, but because it took me by completely by surprise. And it's not my normal type of book. Anybody it's, else read Nita Prose? What yes, is I, I loved it. <laughs> I was going to say, though, there is something about being taken by surprise, isn't there? And so often, I don't know if you'll find this in crime fiction, there are so many formulas that we stumble across. And my heart sort of sinks every time I pick up a book mm. that sort of seems to fit it. And so when you are taken by surprise, and almost particularly when you weren't expecting to enjoy something, you enjoy it all the more, don't you? So I can yeah. totally, I can mm. take empathise. Yeah, it comes from that... a totally different perspective. Sorry, Laura. Mm. Yeah, no, I was going to say, I think the reason I enjoyed The Maid so much was Molly, the main character who's neurodivergent. Mm. And you, she's just lovely. Mm. You, you know, that you sort of want to take her by the hand. Yeah. Um, and that's why I liked it so much. But like Maxim, actually, when I started off, I was thinking, ooh, not sure about this. That's but, interesting. So what was it about the beginning that you weren't sure about, do you think? I think it was the setup. Okay. Actually, the, the Grand Hotel and there's something sort of quite traditional. And it took me a couple yeah. of chapters to get into the writing. But then once you're going along with her, you're, yes. you're right there. Now, I would say that all of you, of course, are paragons, but there's one of you who's a particular paragon, that's Jay Kerridge. Do you want to know why? When I asked you all for topics that we could discuss, you all gave me them, so thank you for that. Jake gave me one that I can even read out, and it, it goes as follows. In terms of topics to discuss, one thing that springs to mind is, we've already touched on this, is editors allowing books to be too long. This Ooh. is getting worse, and it reached its nadir with the ink black heart, although I like a long book if the page count seems justified, like Lady Joker. So what can we all do? Because we're all so influential. What can we do about getting publishers to knock books down to the right length? No. I am. You're, you're influential. <laughs> to ask me. <laughs> Come on, you, you can bully around the, the Supreme Court judges. I like editors? Maxim's answer. I don't think you heard him. He no, I didn't. Not buy them. Well, there's that. Well, there's I mean, there's that, and I think if if publishers are asking for feedback about the book, then you, you've got to be honest and say, "Come on, you know, there's always a smaller book, a much tighter book inside here, mm -hmm. and you know, you really need to start saying, cut it out." 
But I agree. Don't, don't, and you know what? That's very interesting. I think actually streamlining a book always makes it better. The whole Kill You Darlings. I mean, it's it's true. Yeah. A thick book is is a lazy book, isn't it? In in a lot of cases. Uh, Not well, always. It depends. If, it, if we're talking about collect reference type books, I don't mind. But when you're talking about But even novels, some novels call for a lot of pay. I mean, I can think of a few that have just genius and need that space but it's but not going to be more often than not i think they can be sorry so I mean, Paul, it's not going to be a streamlined story is it if it's if it's 700 800 900 pages it's not no. all about the story i'll no. go with some authors when they go for a side and they you know wander off mm. you better be somebody as good as martin scorsese is with film so yeah. you're happy watching mm-hmm. the scene or seeing it develop even yes. though it doesn't necessarily propel the story do you agree, Maxim? Um, well, um, I mean, there are some long books uh, I do enjoy. In fact, the last few books I've read, uh, albeit outside of a crime genre, while I've been travelling, I've been reading books, which I don't have to review. I read yeah. the new Michel Welbeck book in French, which is 750 pages, and I just finished this morning the new John Irving, The Last uh, Staircase, which is 900 pages. Wow. And uh, mm. I have read one 1,100-page book, which I think is a, a masterpiece, and it's uh, mm. the spy thriller by Robert Littell, The Company. By the time I finished it, I, want, I actually wanted more. But yeah, that's, I, the one, that's one that, that justifies Jake's remark, that if the page count is justified, yes, as it was in The Company. But yes, Laura, so. Laura made a good point, I think, which is worth repeating. In a lot of these fat books, there is a slim book struggling to get out. Yeah, exactly. And why is it why is it that editors and publishers are indulging authors and not saying just that to them? Uh, I think one of the main reasons is basically commercial. It's Amazon and the chains. Basically, they want to discount heavily. Therefore, if a book is big, the publisher has the wherewithal to discount heavily, uh, so it gives baby. It basically gives people the perception of value. I mean, it's a totally... It's interesting that, isn't it, Maxim? Because you'd think that with Kindle, where, where of course, you can't see how long Mm. or short Mm. immediately, that would have changed. And I really thought it would result in shorter books, but it hasn't done so. So it must be the discounting, I think. I I think also... Anecdotally, I hear that you know, ed- editors are hard pressed these days at publishers <laughs> to edit less time, and um, they they don't have time to actually spend their days working on the books to the same mm. extent. I but think that, I might might have I a sat next to an editor yeah. yesterday at a meal who said exactly that, Jake. Yeah. Let's get on to our second choice because we have to get through all five choices each. My second choice was Blue Water by Leonora Natras, yes. which I said um, historical crime writing of a vigorous order with Foreign Office clerk Lawrence Jago on a mail ship to Philadelphia in 1794, transporting a crucial document relating to the American <laughs> Revolutionary War. It was a very unusual book, and I thought it was historic. You, you read it as well, Io, did you? Yes, it's on, it's on my list as yeah, well. Yeah, we, we, du- we duplicated that. <laughs> so the, uh, the next choice then for Jake was Percival Everett's The Trees. Oh, yes, which was on the Booker shortlist really mm. from a crime novel and it, it's it's as much a farce as a whodunit but it is a whodunit that these um people being slaughtered whose uh forebears have been responsible for racist crimes and a corpse which appears to be that of Emmett Till who was the uh young black man who was lynched in real life in America in the 50s um his corpse mysteriously or a corpse made up to look like him mysteriously appears by all these um 
fresh murder victims. And it, it's a scathing satire. He's clearly read a lot of Chester Himes. The two African-American cops in the book are clearly mm. Chester Himes inspired. And it's um, an unusual crime novel, um, but very satisfying, uh, blazing satire, absolutely scorchingly angry. Very funny. Um, and yes, a lot of violent death. You said, uh, Jake, it's book nominated. So every so often the book sort of deigns to look at the crime fiction genre. What do you think made them look at this, for instance? I think uh, because it, it's not just a straight crime novel, I think um, they're, they're better on comic novels than crime novels, the book, are, and because um, it's quite openly satirical, I think, think that might have swayed them a bit. Um, and But they're, they're getting more crime novels on the shortlist. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Victoria, your second choice was Polly Phillips' The Reunion. Yes, we're still on toxic friendship with me then. <laughs> yes, so this is um, this is another story about toxic friendship. And as Laura said, it's my balancing act. So this one's in Cambridge rather than Oxford. Um, and it was really, really good fun. It was told across two different timelines, as they so often are, aren't they? Because we often want to see in toxic friendship stories the roots of the toxicity, where it's all started to go wrong. And I think that's often the draw. And it was definitely a draw here. Um, but it's also a story, as is often the case with toxic friendship, about rivalry and revenge. And again, it was just very good fun. I literally burned my my family's dinner. I was enjoying it so much. Yes. Um, I was sitting in the bath reading it and I had to keep topping up the hot water <laughs> just so I could stay in for a little bit longer. Um, and it was it was just a lot of fun. It's her second book. And she's clearly carving out a bit of a niche for herself in that in that area. And she does it very well. So we're on to them, Laura. What was your first choice? It was a book of the most precious substance by Sarah Graham. All right. Now, that was a book that I liked. And uh, there was a review. And I think you were name-checked, Laura. Did you see the re the review by somebody? It wasn't Jake Kerridge. No. That was excoriated the Guardian's review. <laughs> and I don't think they'd seen my review, which is similarly fairly enthusiastic, saying, no, I didn't see why it. the hell do people like this outrageous, preposterous book? Uh, well, I, I didn't think I'd like a book about sex magic, but I absolutely love this. And what particularly drew me to it was the idea that somewhere out there is a book that can solve all our problems. Mm. And how brilliant would that be? Absolutely fabulous. And also, rather like The Maid, I just loved the main character. I loved the situation. It's a biblio mystery um, about... Uh, a bookseller who's in very straitened circumstances. This is America. Her husband has become very ill. She's struggling with the medical bills and just trying to keep everything going and feeling responsible for everything. And she teams up with a friend to hunt down this 17th century grimoire, which is a word I learned from the book. It means a textbook of magic. Mm. Um, and several people want this. And they, they do end up sort of doing all the rituals in the book. Um, but, Actually, the in a way, the sex bit is the least interesting bit of it. Yes. it it's just this this whole thing that you you want to sort of solve your life. And I'm not without doing any spoilers. What I particularly liked about it as well is the ending. Although it sort of strays into the realm of magic, it is so exactly what would happen in this situation in real life. Um, and also, Sarah Grant is a lovely writer. Yes. You said something interesting there, Laurie. You said that the sex thing is not important. Several writers have pointed to how it's about female sexual pleasure when the crime genre has mostly been about male sexual Yeah, pleasure. I have to say, if this had been written in a male point of view, I probably wouldn't have liked it. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, absolutely. Paul, 
Well, my second choice is um, The Invisible by Peter Papathanasu. And apologies there if I've murdered the man's name. But so different from the debut. I think it would surprise people who read The Stoning, which is an incredibly dark book. This is much lighter in tone. Um, what I love about the novel is it's an Australian writer who's brought his detective Manolos back to Europe. Yes. And the borderland between northern Greece, northern Macedonia and Albania. Um, and he's roped into finding a guy who's completely off the grid. No tax returns, no phone, no credit cards, no record of this guy existing at all. He's never been in the system. So it's quite a difficult investigation from that point of view. But it, I think it's the way of, of him looking at the character's roots because he's a, an Australian, but he's a, a Greek detective of Greek origin. So he goes back to Greece. But I think it's also a way of making us Europeans look at European, Europe a little bit differently, too. Mm-hmm. This is well off the beaten track. It's not Cosmopolitan's um, cities, and it's certainly not the usual crime landscape. Just very enjoyable. Now, there are certain writers when they come to these shores who create a flutter. I was going to say in female hearts, but it could also be a male heart. Is a certain good looking, charismatic American writer called Derek Miller. And he's your second choice, Maxim, for how to find your way in the dark. I don't even know what he looks like. I think I no, mean, he's good looking. <laughs> he's I very nice. once, uh, uh, when he won his first dagger for Norwegian by night. Uh, yeah. And this. Uh, the few books he's done in between have been a bit more disappointing, but this one returns to the main character, but rather than do a sequel, he's brought it back to the youth um, of the character. Uh, mm-hmm. And you don't have to know what happens to him when he's old. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's a great Jewish crime novel. It's about uh, crime, Jewish youth in the 1930s. It's about World War Two. And it's a beautifully melancholy book. Uh, it's rather unique in its own way, in so far as it doesn't fit into any specific category. And uh, I mean, I virtually saw no reviews elsewhere when it. No, came there wasn't out. much. Uh, There's very little reviews. Considering he won the dagger. Yeah. I think the thing for night. me was, though, I read that Norwegian by night, and it's a brilliant book. And then after that, the books that came along were distinctly ordinary. So. I haven't read this one, but honestly, uh, I wasn't tempted to pick it up. I think that's... He's, I, he is I, back on board. I think it's even better than Norwegian. Right. right. Yeah, exactly so look, the same yeah. Laurie, your second choice was the one I also picked for the FT uh, by a woman uh, who, for years, one knew as Jane Thin. But like you, yeah. she is now... She is now pseudonymous, and that's C.J. Carey's Queen High. Oh, that was my book, too. Oh, there we are. Three of us like that book. So, Laura, what did did you... um, Had you read the earlier book? Because it is, in fact, Uh, a sequel. Do you know I read them in reverse order? I liked... I'd missed Widowland. I don't think I even got sent it, but I liked Queen High so much that I went back and read Widowland. And I don't think I've been so frightened by something since I saw... The first version of the Stepford Wives, the film, it was truly scary, and she re- she really knows her Nazis. Uh, yeah, she Jane does, Jane doesn't Jane she? Curry. Yes, she wonderful historical novelist, and now wonderful alternate historical novelist. Yeah, really it's brings really it to life, doesn't terrifying. she? That? Yeah, and what she gets very well is this thing of unlearning history and how people become complicit. Yes, in the counterfactual world. When she when she uh, first told me about it wonderful. a few years ago. I did say, oh, I don't know, the Nazis again. And we've had um, Robert Harris, we've had yeah. Lynn Dayton, mm. we've had Philip K. Dick. Mm. She does something totally original and, and yeah. unusual, doesn't she? Yeah. yeah. But you know what? And I don't know what you both thought of this. And this whole, because for people who don't know it, as, as Laura says, there's a lot of unlearning, this idea that memory can be wiped, mm. which 
I had some trouble with, but even putting that, you know, to suspend that disbelief. But what was interesting, and I don't know if you picked up on it, there was absolutely, there was one tiny, tiny reference to the Holocaust. Do you remember? Just almost. Yes. Yeah. And I just thought she remembered so much else and she was aware of so much else. It just struck me, would there not have been so, would there not have been something else? About? I mean, I realize that's not what the book was about, but it, it just felt strange to leave it out. I don't know what you felt about that. Um, well, I, I figured it wasn't in there because she was making the huge thing, the Holocaust, be not a thing. Mm. And that 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 was was part of it. And also because if Britain had capitulated very early on, as it does in this scenario, yes, we might not even have known about the extent of Holocaust. You know, if you think about how did we discover about the Holocaust, it was people going into uh, Buchenwald and all the Belsen and all these terrible places and discovering the appalling things they did. Mm-hmm. But if that mm-hmm. hadn't happened, we might not have known. Yeah, Which so. is obviously the Harris premise, yeah. of course, isn't it? Yeah. For father. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean that that is a good point. And I also wondered about that, but I just I don't know. It that was the my my one niggle with it. I just felt would would somebody who was that conscious about poetry and her life and realizing there was something else. I think, though, that she's operating Mm. on the premise, which I think is true, is that people will swallow a big lie better than a small one. They'll train us a nap, but my God, they'll swallow a camel. And Let's let's move on to our next debate topic. Now, unless I'm mistaken, three of the panellists are published novelists. Jake and I have yet to... um, Grace the best-selling lists with their their book. Paul, I I know is writing something, but it's not a novel. I think that the topic that was brought up, possibly by Laura Wilson, might be based on the fact that these people are telling you how to do it. It's the new book coming by TV comedians, Laura. I think they are. It's, yeah. it's, it's a welcome yeah. new trend, is it not? Showing established authors <laughs> how to write proper thrillers, don't you think? <laughs> Let's not go there. <laughs> oh, we're going to go there. We have to go there. <laughs> so, look, can, can these guys, can any of them actually write? And Laura pointed out they're all male of a certain age. Mm. Oh, but they're not. We've got Amanda ah. Holden coming up next year, haven't we? Oh, so, have we? Okay. Oh, yes. Yep. Got, oh, the, joy. Rosemary Schrager, the celebrity cook. Yeah. All oh, right, there we are. Well, can I kick it off with something then? Go on. Go we've on. got lawyers, we've got policemen, we've got politicians, of course. We all wish we hadn't got politicians writing books because mostly they really do do it very badly. But it, there's no problem with somebody having a second career, even yeah. if they're a comedian, writing a book. The problem comes in is that these people jump the queue because of their celebrity. Mm. They have assumed sales because of a celebrity. Yeah. They get accepted because cool. they're celebrity. Mm. And it, you know, a lot of better writers are not getting published. And these people are jumping the queue. And, and there must be a list, all- I think. If you're a celebrity, you've got a list. It's real politic, isn't it? So uh, a new debut writer comes along, but then there's a TV comedian, you know his name, like children's books. Everybody can write a children's book, can they, from Meghan Markle? It is like they've got a tick list, though, now, isn't it? You've got to write a cookbook, a children's book, a crime novel. Have you not done that, Paul? I mean, Shane, come on. (laughs) I'm so slow. (laughs) We don't know what he's working on. I'm not very funny either. So, Aya, when you get a book sent to you by a TV comedian, do you throw it aside or do you give it full attention? It goes to the bottom of my TBR pile. Right. What about you, Jake? Telegraph readers would want to read a new book by a TV comedian, surely? Well, it depends on <laughs> the comedian. Maybe not Frankie Boyle, but actually, <laughs> actually it was quite good, I thought. Yeah, yeah it was. <laughs> well, that's like the that point. Some, some of them, yeah. some of them yeah. will be quite good, won't they? But is yeah. that is that oftentimes that they 
sorry, this is controversial, but are they not often ghostwritten as well? Yes, yes. they, they so, may be. Yes. So well, Charlie Hickson writes, Charlie Hickson be, writes his own yeah. books, does he not? Yeah. I, no, I don't think all of them are, but some no, are. No, they're not all. They're yeah. not all. I, I, I think for me, I, I think it goes back to something that Paul was saying earlier. The problem I have is not that I don't think they should, they're not entitled to write, but mm. there are others out there who are just not getting the chance. And this is their celebrity that is moving them above everybody else. And I just don't think that it's fair. And not yeah. even just in terms of getting published, but even in terms of the marketing side of it and exactly. everything else. Is, yeah, yeah there is an argument that um, they'll sell lots of units and this will make money for the publisher and the publisher will therefore be able to take a punt lesser known authors. Whether that mm. is actually true, I don't yeah. know, but they certainly suck all the oxygen from the, the publicity thing. Mm. And that's who the publisher well, Let's go on to our next choices. My third choice was by a man who everybody likes. Yes, we've got one yet. Mark, um, <laughs> I thought I had. Go ahead, Aya. Barry. <laughs> Rubbish moderator. I'm, I'm juggling three or four pieces of paper here. Aya, what was okay. your second? My second one is it goes to my nerdiness and my love of research, and it was actually Martin's Edward, The Life of Crime. So I think this is just such a wonderful book that you don't have to... It's the type of book that you do not sit down and read it from cover to cover. You sit down and you dip in and out of it constantly. Yes. And just pick up all these brilliant gems of information... And for me, it looked like a sequel to um, the Julian Simmons, Bloody Murder. Martin is rather like you, Ayo. He, he holds down this full-time solicitor's job. And He's writes semi-retired. These, these amazingly long books, which are <laughs> forensic about the genre. And no, I agree. Great, I agree great great yes. Yeah. I agree about Life of Crime. Yeah. Okay. Everybody's done their second. Here's my third choice. Uh, Vasim Khan. The, the lost man of, Bom- of Bombay. So yeah. in 1950s Bombay, a frozen body of an Anglo-Saxon man is found in the Himalayan foothills, named the Iceman. Persis Wadia, India's first female inspector, is tasked with unraveling the mystery. And then I said it was vivid, bracing crime writing, married to a picture of a country seeking its post-Raj identity. Do you not all think it's interesting that we have three, at least, if not five, really good Anglo-Asian uh, crime novelists at work today? How did that happen, Jake? Yep, uh, I don't know, but uh, um, Basim is is really becoming more and more ambitious uh, as he he starts off with his books about the charming baby elephant, um, which we all loved. But he's showing an incredible range of ambition now. It's really good stuff. Mm. Okay, so while you're on uh, Jake, so your third choice was The Trenches by Parker Bilal. Mm. Yes, yeah, so this is um, I think it's the third book in. The series with um, Crane and Drake, uh, his right. uh, private investigators, not baby elephants, not birds, but human beings. But um, they, uh, the books, are, it really feels like they're telling you about the way we live now. And if you, if you talked about the um, investigations in the books, it might sound like a bit like a checklist of topical issues and there's people smuggling um, and there's a young man gone to join ISIS, basically, um, at the heart of the book. But when you're reading, it really makes sense of how people are thinking at the moment. It's really tuned in mm-hmm. to what's going on. And so, Ayo, your third choice was, and let's get her name correct. She's often called Denise Mina, but it's Denise Minor, is it not? Yes, it is Denise Minor. And you picked Confidence. Yes, I freely admit that I'm a major Denise Minor fan, but the, one of the reasons why I like this book is because I like the, the, the previous one, which was the start of the new series. And I like the fact that she's using 
quite contemporary stuff like podcasts and stuff like that to mm. infuse the story. Mm, and yeah. it is not often you see someone who can manage that and put together a story that makes you think and also uses what's going on contemporary in life and what, what a lot of people are using at the moment, like podcasts and, you know, and blogs. Mm-hmm. And fact, I also like the fact that she also has managed to intersperse, you know, true crime stuff as well. I don't know how she does it, but it Very does. I, I normally don't like true crime, but the way in which she just writes is just for me. Denise, Denise will always be one of my faves. Well, you said, Ayo, that you don't like true crime, but I thought you listened to a lot of true crime podcasts. Am I, I wrong? Oh, I don't listen to a lot. I listen to the odd one. Right. <laughs> so the, uh, the the next choice would be for Victoria. Now, Victoria, everybody thinks I spend my time just watching Jean Dielman and art house films, but I really do enjoy a Superman, Batman, Spider-Man movie, as does Brian McGilloway. We talk about superheroes together. And you've picked The Empty Room. Yes, I loved The Empty Room. It's about um, a mother who wakes up one morning to find her 17-year-old daughter's missing. But it's a story not about, well, it is about the hunt for the daughter and her heartbreak, but also a story about revenge and how far you'll go. And it makes you it makes you ask yourself, what would I do in a desperate situation? And I love that. I love the forcing of the questioning. But what's particularly brilliant to me, I mean, the story is great. It's a slow burn. It's heartbreaking. It's incredibly emotionally written. It's, it's really, really good. Mm-hmm. But he writes from a woman's perspective. And I don't know what you all think, but so often it just falls flat when men try to do it. Funny enough, women, I think, often do it better. But men, it seems to often fall flat. But he nails it. I mean, he he absolutely captures that mother's voice. And he it's, it's a brilliant book. I really mm-hmm. enjoyed it. That was one of the big topics of this year, wasn't it? Whether writers could only write from their own experience. Uh, no, worse. That's worse. It was, it was should they? And this is one of this is one of my great big bugbears, and and we know because you know I've talked about it a lot. But this question of dipping your pen, isn't it, in somebody else's blood? And there's that aspect, and then there's also um, the question of are we writing autobiographies or are we empathising? I mean, there's so much, isn't there, in that in that question? Laura, do Um, you feel constrained when you're writing male characters? No, in the I mean, in the current climate. Uh, no, not remotely. I do, there's this thing called imagination and this other thing called empathy. Yeah, I yeah, remember that. That's, that's exactly and research <laughs> and that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, obviously, you have to be sensitive and you have to be careful, but you know, Maxim, yeah. you have you've moved into territory which is very incendiary territory these days. Women's erotic experience. <laughs> do you do you feel more that it's more tricky for a male to 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 write that sort of thing today than it might have been twenty years ago? Well, it was when I did a series uh, nine years ago uh, and uh, the supermarket buyers told my publishers it has to be published under a woman's name. Uh, But no, uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, I mean, I'm anything but woke. Uh, I'm not politically correct. Uh, As Laura said, uh, you use your imagination and you write what you feel is is right. whether I write about uh, men or women, if it's in the first person or third person, it doesn't really matter. I mean, uh, I just uh, trust my judgment uh, yes. and I let other people rule. Uh, I haven't had uh, that much uh, criticism in that respect. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm surprised, apart from uh, once my Turkish publisher uh, almost went to prison. Well, 
Apart well, from that, you, little you're, detail. <laughs> apart from that, yeah. You're forgetting a crucial incident, Maxim, where when I used to run fiction in crime time, the only complaint I ever had was for Maxim Jakubowski's story, yeah. which was about its extremeness, but it was a badge of honour. So on to the next choice, which would be Paul. So Simona Buchholz, River Clyde. Yeah, I love this. Loved her writing from the first paragraph when I read Blue Night way back. Um, now we're five novels in, and I'm still sure that she's she's the real deal. Um, her Hamburg state prosecutor, Chastity Riley, is refreshingly different, strangely magnetic. You'd follow her into trouble. That's one of the weird things about it. Even though you know she's wrong before you start, you still would. Um, this novel is a return to her Scottish roots. She's healing from the past, which includes a hostage incident at a hotel. Her colleagues are doing the same back home in, in Hamburg. The story's actually quite thin, but it's a beautiful use of language, and there's a continent in the space between the lines, and I love that. Um, it's exquisitely crafted and translated by Rachel Ward. Um, it's a plea for women to be allowed to be different and, and not have to conform. It's also a plea for a better world, um, just exhilarating, exhausting, but ultimately very deeply rewarding. Um, one thing um, just to note, this was the last book in the Chastity Riley series, but I think they're now looking at the first four which weren't published in English, and they're being revamped, and they'll be published um, later. Now, I think, have I more think does anybody remember, uh, I'm going to guess in this group that, Victoria, you may be the only person who didn't meet a woman who was a wonderful addition to the English crime scene is now back in her Native America, which is Meg Gardner. Did you ever meet her? Ooh, yes. Oh, yes. The rest of us did. Yeah, her stuff's brilliant. <laughs> yes, yes. So Max, Maxim's next choice was a book. Now, how much did Michael Mann write of Heat 2, and how much did Meg Gardner write, Maxim? Uh, I'd love to know it. I'm happily <laughs> intrigued because basically if they have distinctive voices, they mesh so perfectly. Um, I don't know, uh, but it's a great book. Uh Heat is one of the all-time great, great noir movies. And uh, for reasons, obviously, only Hollywood knows, Michael Mann, despite his talent as a director, didn't manage to set up uh, this sequel, which is also a prequel uh, within the uh, decade uh, following Heat, and has now basically written it as a novel with the help of Meg Gardner. Uh, as I said, it's both a sequel and a prequel, and a when I read it, basically, all I could see was were the characters from Heat. And it is so cinematic. Uh, it is basically American hardboiled uh, at its leanest and meanest. And it just works. Uh, and it's I think it's a tragedy that it was never filmed. It's mm. too late to film it. Uh, yeah. And, well, of course, uh, one of the main characters in Heat, uh, in the Heat movie, dies at the end. Although he comes back in this book because it shows the 10 years leading up to Heat. Uh, but the other character who does survive and who is the other main character of Heat 2, which is a terrible title, um, basically uh, has now aged so badly that he couldn't act in it. So yes. I think it will, it will never be a movie, or if it is, it won't be the right movie. So, so were you, we were you thinking of... Um... Did you have a mental image of Al Pacino and Robert De Niro when you're reading the book? <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's a great book. I did um, speak to Michael Mann about it. He said um, they wrote it. He took the lead in uh, structuring it, and then he and Meg Gardner wrote alternating chapters. Oh, and right. He praised you know her uh, her description of physical 
place the landscape i think he, he was the reason he chose her and so he could they jake do what they did with uh, bill clinton's book with james patterson by computer they figured out what james patterson had written and what bill clinton had <laughs> oh, written. really <laughs> and they found out all the bits about the noble president who was who is kind of an aesthetic figure who doesn't sleep with his interns that was written by bill clinton oh really <laughs> who would have thought <laughs> what is that so, Laurie, your next choice was Lawrence Osborne on Java Road. Yeah, he Lawrence Osborne tends to write novels about um, people in morally difficult circumstances in exotic foreign locations. And on Java Road is set in Hong Kong during the 2019 uh, pro-democracy demonstrations, which were very brutally suppressed by the Chinese authorities. And he's often compared to Graham Greene. You, you can see why as this... Um, British journalist who's middle-aged and rather sort of losing touch with the way people do things nowadays and is content that his ambition, his career is stalled and has a friendship with a very rich man from a, a Chinese Hong Kong family whose uh, mistress goes missing. She's a protester and she goes missing. And it's a it's a whodunit where the background sort of comes into the foreground, yeah. if you like. Um, and it's basically... A book about moral courage um, and how, for example, this rich Chinese family who looked down on the mayhem from the mid-levels, the heights where they have their swanky flat, and they pay lip service to the Chinese, but obviously they're the epitome of capitalism. And it's how, how we all sort of tread a path between, you know, what are our beliefs and what's our own convenience and that, you know, that sort of thing. And it doesn't offer any answers um but it's very very thought-provoking and i just thought it was a wonderful book and again he's a lovely writer it's very vivid it's very well described well something that laura said to me when we were talking about topics but i'm not going to put it to her because this is her view i'm going to put it to jake jake um you know how articulate laura is so she she uses the word that i'm sure you know i'm never sure how to pronounce this because i've only ever seen it written the word ludic or ludic so laura said I also think the genre is getting a bit freer and more ludic, for want of a better word. Barry, it's ludic. It's from ludo. It means I play. Oh, God. There we are. Get it right. (laughs) Do you think that the the genre is getting, uh, Jake, more spontaneous, more playful? I think so. And books like Sarah Gann, you mentioned earlier, and I just reviewed uh, Jonathan Amy's new book, The Wheel of Doll. Oh, yeah. really enjoyed. And yes, I said it was ludic in the review, and one of the people who comment on online one of the readers um told me off for using this pretentious word parodic oh, <laughs> oh sod off honestly. <laughs> what language are you talking about <laughs> oh, uh, um if and, the word fits why not use it yes but uh, i think yes I, I, i'm breaking out those words more <laughs> often i think there are more a lot more playful books and uh, i think because people associate that sort of playfulness and ludicness with something that's fairly arid and not very deep but there are a lot of books now that sort of combine uh playfulness mm. and games yes. can be with, both yeah yeah yes yeah. so i think people are absolutely did now. you like io did you like the stuart turton books the yeah oh yes which were playful yeah. exactly I mean, they, were, they were grim and serious but they were also playful were they not? yes and they made you think and they weren't i mean you you started to read the stuart turton books and then an automatic crime book or anything like that they just kind of like throw you out but they also throw you up to the extent that you'd really enjoy reading them. Mm. Yes. Mm. It does carry an emotional punch, yeah. the, certainly the first one. Yeah. Uh, 
even though you know you can't actually believe in what's happening and it's structured like a game in a way but then right. you, you you do believe in it so uh, so laura is uh jamie costello's first book which i haven't yet read is that playful um well it's quite serious eco thriller but it is a bit there are satirical moments yeah yeah Okay, so on to our next choice. So, um, Io, you picked Olivier Norek's Breaking Point yes. by, by a, a copper who has really seen the business end of crime. Exactly. And it kind of like comes across in the way he writes. You know, it's gritty, it's dark, it is quite socially conscious in its own way, but not too heavily overboard. And I think the, one of the main reasons why I like it is because I think it's one of the best series of police procedurals that are being written at the moment. And it could possibly be because of his background. But you you read and you and he's not an ordinary police officer. I mean, he's quite fallible and he struggles. And I'm not giving to give away any spoilers, but I'm bloody upset. This is the last book, you know, yes. there's not going to be yes, any more. Mm. Yeah. Is there something about French coppers there that we all liked on Grenage, Spiral, uh, Braco? It's still yes, exotic for us, is it yes, not? There's, there's long barriers. They're not just an English man speaking with an English accent in France, like that TV series with Roger Allen. <laughs> the, worst, the worst of those was, um, which was the one? There was one which was set in Italy. I'm trying to think who it was. Zen. The Zen yeah. series, oh, which, yeah. which had which had the leading actor speaking yeah. with English RP, people on the street speaking Italian, yeah. other members of the police station spoke English but with an Italian accent, and you thought, where was, are what, was that with Rufus? Was it Rufus? Rufus Sewell? Sewell. That's the one. And his girlfriend uh, speaks Rufus with an Italian Sewell. accent, so <laughs> she's speaking with an Italian accent. What's his accent? Well, why why does he sound so? And that is a problem, isn't it? When you do that that sort Rufus, of thing, that actually isn't the whole. Oh, accent thing a problem. The the film of Child Forty Four that just yes. had everyone doing their version of Russian was cringy. Yes. Well, you it's, know, it's, it could have been it, really good, but isn't it also Captain Corelli's Mandolin where we cringed at the the card Italian accents in that? Nobody responded to that. Anyway, anyway, I'm looking forward to seeing what he's going to do next because I think this series. It's going to be hard to beat. It's, yes. it's, it's yeah. interesting because some of the things he's been through, the compassion in the novels is still incredible. The yes. Characters. Yes. So I haven't heard your views, uh, uh, Victoria and Paul, on playful crime novels. Do you like the genre being played around with? Um, I think there's the always... war being Britain? I, lo- I, love, I love playfulness, yeah, in crime, but I think it's all about what you're trying to do with it i mean it has its it has its place doesn't it and some yes. some call for it and some don't and when it's done well i'm mean, janice hallett i think is very playful for example yes. yeah with the form as well as uh everything else is is done brilliantly but if, in other novels it would be completely inappropriate so in the right place it's done well it's it's yes. very good i would imagine paul that you'd be a fan of the genre being played around with and reinvented I, I it. love it yeah. But I think it, it really is down to the author and whether you get taken with it. But the, the kind of absurdity that you get with a lot of French writing as well, you know, for instance, um, right. you're, either, you're either a fan or you're not. And if you are, you're more than happy to be carried along with it. Yes. I like that kind of book that will grab you that way. And the Sarah Graham. I wonder if by too. playfulness, sorry, something's just occurred to me. I wonder if what we're really also saying is inventiveness. And if it's about turning the mm. tropes or formulas, whatever you want to call them, on their heads, looking at things through a different prism. 
Yes. Is that a type of playfulness as well? It is. Maybe. But yeah, is, it, a play, is a playfulness. Yeah, Anybody watching? That. Go on, Laura. And I chose um, wrong, wrong Place, Wrong Time by mm. um, Ginny McAllister, which is basically going backwards in time. And mm. it's a very, very clever book. And what I thought was really good about it was that when you're doing that kind of fancy footwork, mm. it's very easy to make it all about the special effects and the characters are sort of ciphers. But where she gets it right, which is also where Janice Halleck gets it right, is that mm. you care about those people. Mm. And that's what turns it into a tour de force because you don't have any suspense or any anything unless you care what's going to happen. Yes, it's always about character. It has to be yeah. that. Yeah, always. Yeah. What um, about I was the, talking uh, to Jeffrey Deaver about this, actually. And in fact, can I jump in? Because this course. is actually one of my other choices. But I was interviewing him for my season finale of On the Sofa, which will air at Christmas. And we were, he was saying, I'm a plot-driven author. And yet, one cares about his characters. And we were saying, you have to, because otherwise it could be the best plot in the world and you would have no interest in it. Yes. And we were talking in this in this well, interview. It would only satisfy that. one need, yeah. Just, yeah, just to be exactly. entertained just for a couple of hours to pass time. Yeah. Has, there, has anybody been watching the um the the TV series speaking of foreign series they were 10. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's a new version of and then there were none. But it's massively departed from Agatha Christie in, in very interesting ways. I don't know if you call it playful because it, it's bloody and there's a higher body count than with Agatha Christie. Uh mm. Although I don't yet know whether everybody is going to die, as should happen with Agatha Christie. What country is it, Barry? It's French. Okay. Yeah, and it, it's definitely worth catching. So my fourth choice was, and Laura has already mentioned, I think everybody has now mentioned, and it's about time we got round to Janice Hallett mm. with The Twyford Code. I wrote, a counseled book is at the heart of this much-acclaimed complex novel. As a child, ex-con Stephen was fascinated with a children's book, but it's been banned. Was the book a repository of codes for secret agents? Elegant, puzzling, metafictional writing that pleasurably tasks readers with extricating the truth. That book is is one of those sleeper novels, is it not? Do you all agree? Sleeper novel, what do you mean by sleeper? Sleeper as in the sense that it crept up on everyone and we all thought, wow, this is something special. Yeah, because she's doing something so different. I think that's what it is, and she does it very well. And it's, it's that idea, isn't it? It's, it's the playfulness, the inventiveness. Yeah. Of, of- Did you like it, Jake? Yes, very much, yes. Um and uh, the, uh, there was the appeal as well, which the first book sort of that was told in emails, wasn't it? Yes. In, yeah. The appeal, and, and this one's yeah. audio files. That's right. Yes. Yeah. And and there's a lot of fun with with mishearings and yeah. and uh, which um, I mean, not everyone likes that kind of thing in a crime novel, but it just it gives it that extra uh, something that puts it up out of the ordinary. And when you have uh, a book like that, then then I, I don't know, you, you start to concentrate on it more, maybe, and then you yes. involved with the characters and more engaged. I think you've got think two he... dissenters here. Um, first of all, I, I didn't like the appeal. I, I got fed up, I have to admit. And I haven't read The Twyford Code simply for that reason. I probably will get round to it because it really does. I think I have been missing something, maybe. But Maxim, you're no fan either, are you? Uh, I'm not a fan at all. But I did enjoy the appeal. I just thought that second time around, uh, the author felt, oh, I'll go one step further, and it just gets too gimmicky. I thought the appeal with the reports, the emails, uh, the letters uh, worked perfectly and was a very entertaining book. 
and quite deserving of winning uh, the first novel, Dagger. I thought this one, uh, I think she sat down and think, how do I follow up? And it just it just got too gimmicky. I, I, it just, I couldn't connect with it somehow. It just, yeah. I couldn't even finish it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know what, what I think is interesting about it? Why didn't you I think what's interesting, whether you like it or not, what she's doing, I wonder if this is why it's so clever. And actually, Paul and I were talking about this earlier, just on the phone, is when you're a writer, you have a contract with the reader, with a book. You trust me, I'm going to tell you a story and it's going to work and you won't know where it's going. But trust me, it's going to go somewhere and it's going to get resolved. So, so you're in a relationship in a way that you can't be with any other medium, TV or anything else that you you watch or listen to passively. And possibly what's so clever about the appeal, again, whether you like how it's executed or not, is she takes that contract that step further in that she makes the reader part of the solving of the story. Yeah, mm, That's a good point. So, um, Jake, your fourth choice, mm. Ilaria Bernardini's The Girls Are Good. Yeah, I was just going to say first, I see people, um, a lot of people commenting, they want to know if there, there'll be a list of the books available posted yes. somewhere. I think that is being prepared, and we are noticing all your comments. Apologies for not addressing them directly. I'm just imagining people scribbling. <laughs> so, um, Phil, I'm going to ask Victoria now. Victoria, how good are you at thinking on your feet? Because I'm going to throw something at you now. We've Go on, I'm ready to catch. <laughs> we've already discussed CJ Carey, your fourth choice. So come up with another fourth choice. Well, I have my fifth choice, which no, is no, Jeffrey I want, Deaver. I want another fourth choice. You want another one. Well, you know what I'm going to talk about? I'm going to cheat. I'm going to tell you about the book I'm reading at the moment because it's quite brilliant and it's out next year. And I can't remember for the life of me the name. So apologies, but here for the in the show notes. <laughs> um, it's The Quiet Tenant. She has a French name. That's why I can't remember it because I'm. It's it's not as easy as Jane Smith, I suppose. But it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. And it's um, it's a serial killer novel, but it's it turns it on its head because it's not looking at it from the perpetrator's perspective. You know, a bit like what I try and do in Truly Darkly Deeply, she's also not interested in any way in celebrating the killer or understanding the killer, what drives the killer. No, she's interested in the victims, the people who are actually affected. And it's told, it's a bit like Room. Do you remember the book, yes. whenever that was? So a captive, but it's told through various different perspectives, including dead victims, by the way, and um, and the girl herself who was currently being held, and another woman in a bar who was falling in love with this person that we, the reader, know as a serial killer. But she, the person in the bar, has no idea. She just thinks he's a very interesting, charming man. And it's so, to me, it's fresh and the writing is clean and the story like i said it's it's an original take and i'm just I'm okay just well it. you're gonna have to give the details of that to the crime time crew who are putting together this list i will so do that, so Larry, cool. sorry, yes sorry, go ahead. I, did, I didn't uh say anything about my fourth choice um, yeah i was getting to you but go on <laughs> Ilaria bernardini um yes. the girls are good which is about uh a class of uh italian gymnasts teenage girls who go to take part in a gymnastics competition in Romania and they are treated very badly. Um, their physiotherapist sexually abuses them routinely and they have to, you know, they're always breaking their limbs but having to pretend they haven't because they have to take part in these competitions. It's a terrible hothouse environment. And the author is a journalist and it uh, assures us in her afterward that it's all true. Yes. Um, but oh. it's a real um, nail-biter, um, slow-burning but full of horrible violence and and then uh, funnily enough a murder happens 
Uh, okay. So we now have uh, a, a little less than 20 minutes. So we have to get through our final choices and the books we are looking at for 2023. But I'm still with now Paul. Stuart Neville, always a very reliable name. House of Ashes. Yeah, absolutely brilliant book. Emotionally draining book. It's about following two women's stories set at de eight decades apart. But the parallels between the stories start to align. It's chilling and frightening. And ultimately, you see these women deal with the trauma and the cruelty and the um, sort of misogyny and of the background that they come from. Um, the house is a, is a perfect backdrop. It's sort of a sinister backdrop to the story. But the real story is these two women, Sarah Keen and Mary Jackson. Um, and it's about mental and physical suffering, but an indomitable spirit at the end of the day to come through that. It's, it's a spiky book. It's a lot of really tough issues, but um, a brilliant read. So, Maxim, your first, your fourth choice was William Boyle's "Shoot the Moonlight Out." Oh, mine, yes. Uh, I think Boyle just keeps on getting better and better and better. I think it's a, it's just a perfect novel. Uh, it's about ordinary people in Brooklyn uh, over a uh, decade or so, basically a bad mistake done by a young kid, and how it changes the lives of so many people. It's humane, it's moving, uh, and it's also so different from uh, one of Boyle's uh, earlier books, uh, whose title I can't recall exactly, about which was like a modern uh, Thelma and Louise uh, mm. fleeing uh, on the American highways. But here he's come back to Brooklyn, which is very much his territory. Uh, and uh, basically it just uh, goes straight to your heart. Okay. A wonderful novel. So, Laura, your fourth choice was Wrong Place, Wrong Time by Gillian McAllister. Yes, although we have discussed. Yes. That. Nothing more to say about it. I don't Move want to. On. Well, no, just that it's, a, it's just a, a wonderful read, and I highly recommend it. Right. Great. So, yes, moving on. So we are now on to, I think, the last choice for everyone, unless I'm mistaken. It's on me. Uh, apologies. Go ahead, Victoria. Me. <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for you to forget me. Um, <laughs> Jeffrey Deaver and Hunting Time, which is the fourth, I believe, in his new series about a reward seeker called Colter Shaw. And what I loved about this, I mean, Maxim, I forget which book you were referring to when you described it as cinematic, but this book is, is the same. It's very cinematic. You almost feel when you read his books that you're watching it unfold rather than actually reading the words. The words are almost transparent. He's so good at putting the images into your mind. Um, and he's brilliant with twists. Um, it's I, I wrote something for the, for the Express and I said it's it's less like riding a roller coaster and more like going down a corkscrew with Diva. You think you know where you're going, mm. and then it twists and it twists and it twists, and he he pulls it off every time. You he's, think, he's your new best friend, is he not? He's, well, he was, like I said, he was on the sofa. <laughs> he's, um... <laughs> yeah, he read we my book. You might as well tell him that. about the Christmas so he's special my best now. friend now. <laughs> oh, yes, what about the Christmas special, Victoria? <laughs> yes, yes. Right. Well, that's what I just said. He's on the sofa. He's, uh, he's rounding off um, season three in style. Okay. Um, and we will be discussing craft and crime and um, characterization. And he does that brilliantly, too. You know, he just yes. he's he's almost like a masterclass. It's reading his books is like, you know, uh, having a masterclass in creative writing. His scenes are so tight. He's a planner, as we know. Yes. Um, and because he plans so carefully, 
he can really focus on the execution and drawing absolute tension out of the scene, getting the dialogue knife sharp and getting character in um, through an item of clothing or a tone of voice. And it's, it's, it's really, for me, it's really inspiring to read. I mean, Laura, I don't know about you, of course, as another writer, it's, there are some books, aren't there, that you just, you feel you learn and learn from, I think. Yeah. There are people I go back to again and again. Yeah, exactly. So we're moving on to our final choices now, unless I'm mistaken. Aya, I'm going to give you a different final choice because you and I agreed about Leonora Natras's Blue Water. Okay. Unless you've got anything else to say about that. What about another choice? No, if I'm going to go for another choice, then I am going to go for um, The Devil Takes You Home by Gabino Iglesias. Okay. Don't know it. Yes. American author and... Um, it's a mixture of kind of like crime and horror. And for someone like who doesn't generally tend to read horror, I was actually fascinated with this book. It was incredibly well written. It, I wasn't, it's gone under the radar to a certain extent as well. I think it's one of those books that I think you'll slowly people are going to think, oh, actually, I should have read that book when it came out. Because mm. it's incredibly well written, incredibly harrowing, but incredibly well done. Right, so you may have to supply the details of that to Crime Time so it can go on the list. Can I interject? Uh, I uh, basically, uh, it reminded me a lot of um, Sean Cosby's uh, mm, yes. books, mm. except with a Hispanic uh, element to yes. it. Yeah. Element. I think that's an interesting the point. Only, a lot. The only drawback, uh, not for me, but which might, which might be one of the reasons that people haven't flocked to it, is the fact that there is so much in Spanish where he, it's not translated. Oh, I mean, yeah, I can yeah. Spanish. Mm. And a lot of uh, people, they they don't mind obviously a word, a word or so, but there are almost three or four lines per page in Spanish. Yes. Which are never translated, which yeah. might be a problem for the uh, normal readers. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I did have to have recourse to a dictionary, but my God, it's worth it. Mm-hmm. So, Jake, your final choice was. Murder, Memoir, Murder by the very talented Anthony J. Quinn. Yes, and it, it's it's crime fiction and it's not crime fiction. It's memoir as well, but it, it's it's a mixture of the two. Uh, uh, there are sections of fiction about the hunt for an uh, IRA killer in South Tyrone. And there are also sections that are memoirs of Anthony Quinn's own family's involvement with real life IRA crimes. So it's a mixture of the two. It's beautifully written um apart from being to do with very real very horrible crimes um it's also a meditation on how you tell stories the relationship between fact and fiction um very clever but with real heart and real now depth. you jake you called him anthony quinn i believe those two writers anthony quinn and anthony yes. j quinn let's leave the actor out of this are constantly mistaken which Anthony J. Quinn are you talking about? It's Anthony J. Quinn. <laughs> um, yes, there are about 17 different Anthony Quinns writing now, I think. Um, <laughs> very confusing. There should, there, there should be a rule like equity. You have to change your name if you have the same name as another writer. Well, here's a rule. There should there should never be another book called Dead of Night or another film called Dead of Night. Or I mean, there is... the <laughs> <laughs> So, um, Paul, you chose as your final choice Small Death by Rihula Das. Yes. 
Um, well, this is right up my street. This is probably, you know, the kind of book my baby people would have expected me to cover. Um, devastating look at Kolkata's underworld, brothels, police corruption, violence and pimps, a tilt at the caste system, the plight of the poor, the national struggle with religious divides and democracy, all the sort of stuff that a lot of people would now say, oh, that's turning me off. But this is actually a, a very interesting book. The heart of it is a woman who's elevated to the high-end escort business when her friend is murdered. And the man who's in love with her that she doesn't care for particularly at the start is a low-caste person. And it's their story and how they survive in this horrible mix. It's touching and it's frightening and it's, it's about love and grief and redemption. It's, it's a beautiful book at the end of the day. It's beautifully written. You mentioned casts, and that will be my it appears in my final choice. But I think as a writer that I'm going to guess that everyone on this panel likes Dion Mayer, mm. The Dark Flood, translated by K.L. Seegers, which was written in Afrikaans, as all his books are, despite his impeccable English. He prefers to write in Afrikaans. And I read that Mayer is, is the monarch of South African crime novelists. And it's, it's typically large scale, and there's no stinting on the usual critique of South African politics. So, um, Maxim, Maror by Lavi Tidar. Have I got the pronunciation yeah, correct? Yeah. Uh, well, Maror is uh, the great Israeli crime novel that uh, James Elroy never wrote. Mm. Basically, what uh, Tidar has done, uh, and he's one of the most, uh, shall we say, chameleon-like genre authors uh, around today. He's, he's done books with uh, Adolf Hitler, as uh, a private eye in London in the 1930s. His two previous books were about Robin Hood and King Arthur. And this book is basically, it's Tel Aviv Confidential. It uses <laughs> all the Elroy It's a good title. <laughs> and it's a book about uh, the creation of a state of Israel where every single character is crooked. Right. Cops, soldiers, prostitutes, drug runners, politicians, everybody is crooked. But basically, out of it comes a new country. It's utterly savage. It's nasty. It's based on a lot of real facts, as the author, although he writes in English, is Israeli. And I think it's a major achievement. And yes, it is a long book at over 500 pages, but I would have uh, read an extra 500 pages too. Anybody have the same problem I have? You mentioned historical figures being uh, doing service as detectives. I have problems when people like Oscar Wilde are made detectives. Yes. How, how the hell did Oscar Wilde have time between being lauded as the, the toast of the West and, and solving crimes? And writing the odd play. And writing the odd play. And odd then being disgraced. <laughs> so you have to believe Conan Doyle, okay, because he had that kind of mind and he actually did that sort of thing. But it, Well, it, he did. When Agatha Christie went missing, he got yes, involved. He yes. So I think we've still got a couple of final choices. Uh, Laura, The Undiscovered Deaths of Grace McGill, C.S. Robertson. Yeah, it was a toss up between this one or uh, The Skeleton Key by Erin Kelly, which I also loved, uh, um, partly because she's just a brilliant psychological novelist and partly because I'd loved Masquerade and, you know, knew the era in which it was set. But The Undiscovered Death of Grace McGill, C.S. Robertson, who I think is Craig Robertson, Scottish mm. writer. Yeah. Um, it's fascinating because it was about a death cleaner, you know, one of these people who goes to the scene of the crime of decomposing corpses and hauls out the mattress with all the body fluids on it and all this kind of thing. Um, but it was this again, the central character who is this this woman who has a very I don't want to do spoilers here, but very difficult relationship 
with her father. She gets very obsessed by um, the scenes of crime as they turn out to be and makes little dioramas. And it's, it's, it's really a book about, about loneliness, apart from anything else, as well as a very good mystery. And it was very touching, very haunting. All and, but you have to have oh, a strong sorry, stomach. Finished. Sorry, go on, Laura. I thought you'd finish. I was going to say, but you need a strong stomach as well. Okay. <laughs> now, here's an important part of the evening, and everybody who's been listening so far, you don't need to write this down, but you need to mark your cards about what we're going to tell you now. We're going to tell you what you should listen for in 2023. And I, Io and I agree on the same writer and the same book, when um, Paul is now a judge for the historical dagger, it used to be called the Andrew Taylor Award, didn't it? Yes. Before that, before that, it was a C.J. Sampson Award. Yeah. So they just automatically won. So I'm looking forward to, and so is Io, the Shadows of London. Andrew Taylor, do you agree, Io? Definitely. He's a fantastic writer. Great sense of place. Really, really magnificent characters. And you pick up an Andrew Taylor book, and you just basically want to devour it. Yes. Also, you never feel that um, all the research has been freighted in. No, it's part of the te- the texture of the of the, the narrative, isn't it? It's done. So, it's done so subtly that you can like just think, yes, this is brilliant. Yes. So, Laura, you chose. Well, I think initially you said "Stay Buried" by Kate Webb, but then you broadened it out a little. Well, that's that's one of a number of books I'm looking forward to reading. I mean, I've just staggered to the end of this year. I haven't read anything for January yet. Um, so that and a, a book which is looks very promising by Charlotte Vassell called The Other Half. That's also a debut. I'm looking forward to the Andrew Taylor, of course. And there are new books by Liz Nugent, wonderful writer, mm-hmm. and also Louise Candlish. Yes, all very good writers. So, Maxim, you chose Death and the Conjurer by Tom Mead. Yes. Ooh. Yes. Uh, everybody who knows me for my love of noir and hardboard, well, this basically is a step back in time to John Dixon Carr, and it's the best <laughs> mystery since John Dixon Carr, young mm. British author who's been doing short stories in American magazines, first novel, second one already delivered, uh, and basically, I can't say any more than. It reminded me of John Dixon Carr and who does locker room mysteries better than John Dixon Carr. The, da- the daddy of the locker room mystery. Yeah. It could have Was been written in the, it could have been written in the 1940s. It makes no difference. It's a wonderful read. Okay. The other book I was looking forward to, but when you asked me for my prediction, I hesitated, but I hadn't read it. Now I've read the first 50 pages and it wouldn't be on my list is the new Brett, Estin, Brett Easton Ellis, his first novel in 10 years. Oh, yes. Which is a 750-page <laughs> novel, and I gave up after chapter two. <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, so, Jake, you've chosen Thomas Nevinson by Javier Marias. Yes, well, I just, uh, I've just got... Um... I've just got this Brett Easton Ellis. Right. <laughs> and now you're not going to read it, are you? <laughs> there we go. Uh, I was looking forward to that. Uh, well, yes, I, yes, Thomas Nevinson by Javier Marias, the great Spanish writer who, who sadly died a few weeks ago. And this is, um, so this will be his last book. It's a companion to a book called Berta Isla, which was published here four years ago, I think. And Berta Isla is it the wife of a spy, and the book was about her life, wondering what her husband was up to and doing many other things. 
And this time, this is the companion piece. Thomas is the spy. We get to find out what he's been doing. He's he's been recruited um, in a very lacarryish way um, in Oxford. And if you've read Maria's his, um, Your Face Tomorrow Spy trilogy, then you'll recognise a lot of the characters. And this is you know these are long books again, but uh, slow and I'm going to say it, Barry Proustian. Proustian. No, well, you see, Laura, he said it, not me. Yeah. A lot about memory and and, and you know, very long descriptions of events and places, but it, it justifies the page count. So earlier in the evening, uh, Victoria and Laura talked about toxic friendships. And I hope you're nice to your friends, Victoria, because you've picked The Things We Do to Our Friends by Heather Darwin. Yeah, it does say something about me, doesn't it? <laughs> but you know what? So this is um this is a debut. So Heather Darwin, uh, The Things We Do to Our Friends. And it's billed as a book about toxic friendship. And it's set in uh, Edinburgh this time, Edinburgh University. But you know what? I don't think it is. I mean, obviously, there is a toxic friendship. But to me, it was more a story about, I mean, revenge, obviously, but also belonging. And it was the belonging bit that hooked me, I think, in this. And Laura's talked a lot, we've all talked a lot, haven't we, about the importance of character in a novel and how mm. that's mm. that's what really gets you. And I, I thought the dynamics were so interesting and the way she got under the skin, the sort of the observations that... You know, so often you just get surface level observations about emotions and how people are feeling. But this this really nailed it in certain places. And to me, it just it rang. It was a very extreme story. And yet it was also one that we could all relate to elements of at the peripheries. So I really enjoyed it. And she writes beautifully. I mean, her her prose is very poetic. And for a debut as well, I think to write that assuredly is 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 something very promising to come. So we have one thing to do before we end, but Paul, your choice for 2023 was White Riot by Joe Thomas. Yes, Joe Thomas. Mm. It's the beginning of a trilogy. Um, this one's set in the 70s. It's unashamedly a political thriller, or there will be a political series that will run from the 70s through the 90s. So the Labour government collapsed, the Conservative government that follows with Thatcher and so on. Um, but Joe is exceptionally good at getting character too, and you get to understand that. And I, I, it's brilliant writing, brilliant writing. Well, thank you all. We've got five minutes left, and I'm going to introduce a new element to the evening now. It's oh, a kind yeah. of, it's a little. That's what I was thinking. It's a literary, it's nothing to do with underwear or anything like that. It's to do with, it's a literary. They don't know. Literally don't understand that, Joe Barry. listening other than the panel. I'm going to introduce a literary room 101 of topics that we don't want to see in 2023. I oh. think Laura may put books by male comedians in your room 101 slot. I just might. Yes. Anybody else Ooh. agree with that? That may be the great. I think like deluge of celebrities is a bit tiring. Now, Victoria, what's your room one hundred and one? What do you not want to read a book about in twenty twenty three? You know what I'm sick of is, and it goes back to what I was talking about with um, the one I'm really enjoying at the moment, uh, the Quiet Tenant. Is I'm sick of what I call serial killer porn. So when you celebrate the killer and you have the reader, frankly, it appears to be luxuriating in the execution of the crimes. I mean, that's sort of, it offers, to my mind, it offers nothing new and I'm bored of it. And I'm I must confess, it. Victoria, I'm not seeing these books. When I read a serial <laughs> killer novel, I, they're pretty loathsome figures. I can't remember when I last read one by somebody worthy. 
well, Hannibal Lecter may have been the last, but even he's a loathsome figure. And he's Thomas a loathsome Hux figure, but there's, there's the depiction of the crimes. There's too right. much. I, I'm all, I, all for understanding what makes a monster, of course. I mean, we all are, aren't we? We're all interested in that and evil and where it comes from. But the... There is, there are, I mean, Paul was nodding. I mean, so you know what I mean, don't you? There is, there okay. are certain novels which do seem to luxuriate in that detail. And to me, it feels exploitative and distasteful. And I'm very much over it. And I'd like a different angle. Yes. All right, Paul, Paul, you can't come up then without, you have to come up with something original now. What do you not want well, to okay. do? <laughs> How about, this is something I discussed with Laura actually last week. And it, uh, it's the thing about when you're a critic, you get to see a lot of books on the same topic dropping through the door all the time. Mm. And one of them this year has been islands. Yeah. And it's another story set on an island. And you just get to yeah. the point where you think, oh, God, not another story set on an is island. Is this because Agatha Christie did it? And uh... Yeah, it's the closed, <laughs> the closed circle <laughs> thing, isn't it? You know, so. yes. you know what I think it is? Yeah, I think those books again, about all... islands were being written when we were all Talks in lockdown. On an island, yes. <laughs> yeah, they probably were, weren't they? Yeah, I think yeah. so. And yeah. they're just coming up now. Yeah, yeah exactly. I would my, my my choice would be, and I hope to God Victoria and Laura aren't writing this book as I speak, in which a woman who's married to a very successful husband and has the perfect marriage and beautiful children finds that he's a killer. Oh, God. So oh God. A variation on Jane Eyre or or Rebecca appears monthly, does it not, Jake? Mm. Yes. <laughs> Funny enough, no. I was going to say something slightly similar. I put up with these women in perils books. Yeah. They just annoy the hell out of me. Why? Or, or, or something's happened to the children. Because I think it's been oversaturated. It's and all think, about things being done too much, isn't it? We just need yes. new angles and new yes. yeah, ways of looking but, at things. But I do think that we're sort of slightly looking at it from a, the wrong angle because we're not the general public. So we see all this stuff coming <laughs> one go. You know, we're on a different part of the circumference of the circle. Mm. So mm. to speak. Yes. I'm not I'm not sure how much you would actually notice that if you just went to Amazon or walk. Do you see what well, I mean? That's true. I mean, we've got a wider yeah. um, a, a broader spectrum when it comes to Yeah, we've to got a particular million. window in in into this. But you, yes. yeah, you do uh, yeah, maybe we see too many, but when yeah. there are so many books with with a woman, as Barry says, who doesn't realise her husband is a killer and has um, for the plot to work mm. has to be extremely stupid. And so then you're getting a cascade <laughs> of books about extremely stupid. Uh, <laughs> Intelligent. So in, in the last couple of minutes, so Maxim, you're not a man who minces your words about things you don't like. What do you not want to read about in 2023? Well, I'll be a total contrarian. Uh, ah. As much as I dislike uh, serial killer novels and Victorian, I disagreed last year. And as a result, uh, I had a rather irate letter from someone as a result. Whoa. Uh, <laughs> um, and I'm... Uh, sick and tired of domestic thrillers, of husbands, uh, of wrong and husbands. Uh, I don't mind getting more just because I hope that one day one of them will come in and surprise me and do something different. Something That's different. what I want. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so the only yeah, person, I think, unless I'm mistaken, who we haven't heard has room on their choice is Jake. Or have yes, we covered all your topics already? Well, I was just going to say, I think maybe it's more of a publisher thing than an author, but you get these uh, books in sort of pastel covers and the, the typography, <laughs> strangely reminiscent of Richard Osman's book, The Calligraphy of mm. the Titles. Oh, I these, see what you these, mean, yeah. These, these books that are marketed as cosy crime and they, they all mm -hmm. are being packaged to look the same. And I find it rather off-putting because there's a tweedness to them. I think publishers mm. may be doing yes. 
So Anything with a cup of tea on the front, Jake. You know? A cup of tea on the front. A cup of tea on the front. So yeah. In fact, you're essentially saying, Jake, you don't want any more clones of the Thursday Motor Club. Yes, but I, I also, you know, Dennis, Dennis Hallett's book. And if he's not saying that, I am. That, 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 that's not fair to Janice Hallett, but it's the way the books have been packaged. And they're just, yes. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah. I suppose in fairness to the publishers, though, you're, you're, picking up on cues aren't you that readers will identify yeah. and like the swing is a missing child or the the knocked over wine glass is domestic violence or whatever or, or else. A woman standing in the background on red raincoats yeah. red raincoat right right there, i will be going out all night can <laughs> i thank paul burke maxim jankowski <laughs> io anatade jake carriage victoria selman laura wilson i'd like to thank you all for listening and it will all be online will it not paul it will certainly will so in a very ludic way, way. Out, ludic way. and everybody have a great week. christmas thank you bye thank you very much bye everybody bye bye